Though it hasn't always been well known, there's a small triangular hamlet perched near Johns Hopkins Hospital, Druid Hill Park, and the Jones Falls Expressway. It's a place once known for its five and dimes, dress shops, and cheap hearty eats. But everything else about it is slightly contradictory. It's known for its lovely trees, but also for its stark industrialism. It's fondly recalled for its cleanliness and traditional values, but also for the grime of its underground scene and its penchant for elbow grease. It's the home of the Hun, a beehived bastion of kitschy stick celebrated with an annual costume-centric Hun fest, but also home to many working-class women who don't see themselves represented in the popular caricature. Welcome to Hamden, an historical mill town once responsible for supplying grains, flour, and cotton duck to businesses across the nation. Hamden has always been predominantly white and atypical of modern-day Baltimore City. It still is. How does that happen? How do some urban working-class communities manage to retain a predominant whiteness after deindustrialization, white flight from surrounding communities, and the popularity of suburbanism? Like many tight-knit neighborhoods, Hamden has a reputation for protecting its boundaries, though in Hamden, those boundaries vary depending on who you're speaking to. Through the years, that's resulted in wariness, even hostility, to outsiders. I expected to experience some of that in the weeks we spent visiting Hamden and reporting. But my colleague Ali Post and I discovered, as proud as Hamden is of its past, it isn't entirely defined by it. As invested as Hamden is in kitsch, nostalgia, and the ideals of small-town Americana, its residents are also ideologically diverse. There is no one prevailing Hamden attitude, archetype, or narrative. These days, so-called outsiders are flocking to Hamden in droves. They're opening restaurants, high-end antique shops, and mixed-use residential and business properties. It's become so popular, in fact, that Redfin voted it one of 2016's 10 hottest neighborhoods in the country. How did Hamden retain its historical whiteness and exclusivity? It's simple. Hamden has gentrified. And that looks different in this historically white community than it does in other areas of Baltimore City where young, white, upscale professionals are displacing the black working poor. Here in Hamden, if you squint, gentrification can look downright festive. For WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Stacia Brown, and this is Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, Episode 8, where there's a mill, there's a way. Um, there was nothing here except those two houses that I mentioned uh, in 1850, and the mill built these houses and other houses for the mill workers, and you had to work in the mill to be able to live here. Uh, and it, it was a privilege. Hamden's story begins with its mills, which started to open in 1802. Eventually, there were six. Woodbury Mill, Druid Mill, Metal Mill, Clipper Mill, Mount Vernon Mill No. 1, and Mount Vernon Mill No. 2. This was over 80 years before Hamden was considered part of Baltimore City. Hamden was annexed in 1889. By then, it was already a thriving, if insular, community. Mr. Guy Holliday, whose voice you just heard, lives in Stone Hill, a cluster of stone cottages originally built as mill housing. Mr. Holliday has lived there since the 1970s and is the author of a book about Stone Hill's history. He warned us as we prepared to visit his home that GPS wouldn't help us find it, and he was right. The stone mill cottages are half-hidden from the straightforward 20th century homes around them. 
Mr. Holiday had to come out to the unpaved street to meet us. These are raspberries. So you're a big gardener? I love to garden, yes. Within his gated yard, the sound of birds chirping seemed clearer, the grass seemed greener, and life seemed to slow, as though we truly stepped back in time. As Mr. Holliday told us about Stonehill's earliest function as corporate housing, he explained how the involvement of milling corporations as suppliers of homes and creators of social organizations kept workers loyal to the mills. I've worked in a cotton mill all my life. I ain't got nothing but a barlow knife. It's a hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times everywhere. It's a hard times, cotton mill girls, a hard times, cotton mill girls. The 19th century, in the U.S., in the East, there were any number of small towns that were villages that were established by a corporation, often a milling corporation, and they gave people housing. They had a company store. They had entertainment, a church, all of these things, uh, and all of it at a, uh, a reduced price, so that if you went out on strike, you were put out of your house and you had to find a more expensive place to live. Dave Gadsby, former director of the Hamden Community Archaeology Project, says this kind of arrangement was a dream come true for Hamden's earliest workers, most of whom were Irish, then German, and later, during World Wars I and II, Appalachian. So you get, you know, people who are who are out on the farm and someone comes up and says, hey, you know, you can we'll work you can work 10 hours a day. You can only work 10 hours a day because it was it looked better than working on a farm. Uh, we'll pay you a steady wage. You'll get fed every day. Just come work in my mill. Until sometime after World War II, the mills guaranteed Hamden reliable commerce. But their exclusivity to outsiders also ensured staunch segregation. The group that's not moving in. I don't know if you could say it's by design, but it's, you know, it's, it's a segregated place. And the group that's not moving in is African-Americans. And, they, and that be, it remained segregated for a long time into the 20th century. Gradually, the mills began to close, permanently altering Hamden as its residents and their forebears had known it. The mills remained open, the U.S. government in the 40s during the Second World War, uh, and then they sort of tapered off. That was their last boom, and then they sort of tapered off after that. By the end of the 1960s, after desegregation, mill life in Hamden had ended. People began to commute out of the small town for work, or they'd open other types of businesses there, in search of other streams of income. But even with those changes in that economic decline, or perhaps especially because of it, Hamden remains segregated. If you don't live in Hamden, it's hard to work in Hamden. If you don't work in Hamden, it's hard to live in Hamden. So that's one factor, is that it's hard to get there from other places. All the housing stock is only being sold by whites, all the loans are only being made to whites, and only whites are really being hired. And then if you did try to sell a house, there's, you know, there's sort of examples of, of African-Americans early on, not early on, in the 20th century, trying to trying to buy houses, there would be sort of typical terror tactics used against them. So, you know, we know of one family that had rocks thrown through their window and, and arson threatened to their house. And if the institutional methods of keeping people out failed, there was the sort of terroristic way of of doing it. And fortunately, that's all changing. And Hamden, you know, now is, is 
it's not as diverse as the rest of the city is certainly not as african-american as the rest of the city but it's getting you know it's getting there and it's not known the way it was in the 50s and 60s as a place where african-americans couldn't go it's true i felt far more welcome than i thought i would walking the streets of hamden and that's in large part because of what's been happening to the community since the early 1990s redevelopment of landmark spaces has been a huge part of hamden's comeback story and some of its biggest architectural makeovers have been in the very buildings that originally launched the town's economy, the mills. In the past few years, there have been three major mill redevelopments, Clipper Mill, Metal Mill, and Union Mill. We spoke to Union Mill redeveloper Evan Morville of Seawall Development, who gave us a tour of Seawall's impressive mixed-use project. So this is the... This is the residential portion of the project, um, originally built in 1866 and added onto in 1872. And Union Mill is really unique because it has solid stone walls. It's the largest stone mill in the state of Maryland. The original portion along Union Avenue is 56 apartments for teachers new to Baltimore. And then the uh, portion that was added in 1872, the L portion is 40,000 square feet of office space for nonprofits. As was the case for Hamden's original industrialists, Seawall's union mill has drawn in out-of-town workers, in this case, teachers new to Baltimore City, with the promise of safe, convenient, affordable An amazing housing. fact, a lot of the schools in Baltimore City don't have copy machines, and if they do, they don't have paper or they don't work. Um, and so a lot of the teachers do all their own copies. And so, you know, what, you, what we were finding and what they were telling us was that they were having to go to Kinko's to make copies paying 10, 11, 12 cents a copy, and wouldn't it be great if we had a copy center, so to speak, here in the building? So we uh, partnered with a local copy company and are able to provide copy services or copiers for the teachers at like three cents a copy. And what's actually really cool is like you come down here on a, on a weeknight, seven, eight, nine o'clock, and there's a bunch of people like in their PJs making copies, drinking wine, having fun. Evan sees Hamden's redevelopment as a microcosm of what's happening all over the city. Everywhere in Baltimore is changing. Uh, you know, when you look at Baltimore, uh, you know, I think most would say our, our heyday, our, our prime time was in the early 1950s. And with the number of cultural and socioeconomic reasons, um, our, our population declined tremendously with you know suburbanization desegregation white flight from cities uh you know the city is originally built for 1.2 million people and there were about that many people in the early in the early 1950s we have just over 600,000 now so when you look at the city of baltimore in theory you could accommodate twice as many people and it wasn't uh, until the early 1980s when we redeveloped the Inner Harbor that we started to reinvest into the city and you started to see things turn around. And so what I see is what took 30 years to tear down, so to speak, will take 60 years to build back. That's, that's my belief. Evan believes that making once thriving neighborhoods more appealing to newcomers is essential to the city's future, especially neighborhoods like Hamden that aren't near the coveted waterfront real estate. What's occurred in the last 10 years in Baltimore is amazing. Uh, it's amazing. What's happened at Harbor East and what's happened at, in, in Canton are great. But what's going to be fun and exciting is to see the areas other than the Inner Harbor getting developed. Uh, the areas like Remington, like Hampton, like Woodbury, like um, uh, you know, other parts that aren't along the water turning around and people wanting to move into it. And it's fun to see 
a, a new generation of people come into the city to make it the place that it once was. It's worth noting that Remington and Woodbury, like Hamden, have also been historically white neighborhoods. That they're receiving so much investment in care these days, while larger, predominantly black city communities are not, speaks volumes to the city's priorities for economic regrowth. It's a hard time Up next, you'll hear from some of Hamden's longtime residents and business owners who've helped maintain and reshape the town. You're listening to Baltimore, the rise of Charm City, on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. For this episode, our field producer, Allie Post, took the lead on interviewing. She spoke with a lot of people in a lot of different settings, from private residences to Angelo's Pie in the Sky, a pizza place on the 14th floor of a senior citizen's building. Those residents told Allie about Hamden in its mid-50s heyday and how affordable businesses on 36th Street, affectionately known as the Avenue, shored up the economy in the years following the mill's decline and closure. They spoke about newer community phenomena, too, like Miracle on 34th Street, a nationally recognized block of row homes that annually draw in thousands of tourists to see an ornate spectacle of Christmas lights and creative landscapes designed by the homeowners there. Those residents, many of whom have lived in Hamden since long before its latest wave of redevelopment, can tell its story better than we can. Take Fred Wilhelm, for instance, who's lived with his wife Joan in Hamden for decades. Grandpa Tell me about the good old days. You could get anything you wanted on 36th Street, known as the Avenue, uh, from things to eat to shoes to men's clothes, women's clothes, uh, Murphy's Five and Dime store, two theaters, what, five restaurants perhaps? Uh, Maybe not. I'd have to count them. Um, so you could basically do anything you wanted to do along the avenue and the important thing that I remember about the avenue which is central Hamden really uh, is that Saturday nights the avenue was a meeting place that's where everybody went to see their friends at the corner of 36 and Elm the Salvation Army Band played. My relatives came over here from Ireland, from Germany, from Scotland. They had to work hard. When the Irish came over here, my I got postcards around here somewhere where my grandmother gave me where it said, don't hire the Irish. You know, and that's how it was. They were hard on the Irish people. You know, nobody gave them anything. They had to work for it. One longtime Hamden homeowner described raising her five children in the neighborhood after relocating from the Pimlico area, which became unsafe for her in the late 1960s. You know, when they had the riots and everything, I said, here we go again. I personally have problems. My minister works with me on this. After what I went through in 68, you know, I have black friends. But as a, let me tell you, if there is a problem, and it's a lot of them, they're going to turn against you. And I've seen that. But so far around here, the people that we've had, you know, have been pretty good. You know, they don't want you profile them, but you have no choice. It's just that I think a lot of things have changed since the old-timers have left. There's a history of racism, which many people are trying to get over. And there, I have friends who, uh, as recent as 10 or 12 years ago, 
could get beat up for being gay. You know, their neighbors would give them a hard time. And so that has changed. Michael Makarovich is the owner of Hamden Junk, spelled exotically J-U-N-Q-U-E. It's an antique shop he opened 21 years ago. With its plethora of Virgin Mary figurines in the storefront window, you can't miss it on an avenue stroll. So there's a whole variety of people and hipsters and artists and people that uh, at first could afford sort of the rents and, and the housing. And like, for instance, at Clipper Mill, where Woodbury Kitchen is, um, I had friends who were artists who had their studio and lived there illegally. But it was easy and it was cheap and it was good. But now it's like, you know, $500,000 houses and $75 meals and stuff. So it's, it's, it's the way it goes. Debbie Falkenhan is the owner of Falkenhan Hardware, a thriving business with longtime personal ties to the community it serves. Debbie inherited her hardware store from her father, who originally purchased it in 1968. She was raised in Hampton. In a town this size, there's no place to hide. It was very family-oriented, very blue-collar. Um, everybody knew who you were, so if you were doing something wrong, you could pretty much guarantee you were going to get in trouble because somebody was going to yell at you and then call your mother. So um, business-wise, when I was young, 36th Street was a thriving thoroughfare. Um, I watched it go down late 70s into the 80s. Um, late 80s and into the 90s is when it started coming back up. And so today, my kind of slogan is we've gone from cotton duck to duck confit. It's become from blue-collar working class to houses 10 years ago that you could get for $60,000 are now like $300,000 in the the little neighborhood. But it draws a lot of people into this community because it's safe. It's a little pocket of the city that, um, in a way, time had forgotten. It's like a little town. I will say since this resurgence of restaurants in Hamden, Hamden's looked upon as a extremely prosperous neighborhood. And unfortunately, not everybody in the Hamden neighborhood is as prosperous as that looks. Hamden has a drug problem. They've had a drug problem for years, but it's never been as prominent as it has been for the last, say, 15 years. Um, we have a lot of, unfortunately, it's more a chronic problem. It's a parent was an, had a problem and maybe a grandparent had a problem. So you can go back, unfortunately, in generations with some families in Hamden. And so if you're in Hamden, you really, it's your destination. You're not just passing through. And some areas that are really wonderful, some people pass through and do you harm, like Charles Village or Bolton Hill or something. But Hamden is kind of like a hidden little gem of the city. That gem won't stay hidden for long, and that's largely because of savvy business owners like Denise Whiting, whose Cafe Hun opened in 1992 and has masterfully capitalized on the nostalgia of Hamden's good old days ever since. I had somebody in my family that just sort of reminded me of that kind of person. She was somebody I looked up to. She was an aunt, and she just um, was always very sort of perfectly coiffed and well-dressed and... you know, I, that was sort of what, you know, my, my memory of that era. Whiting told us that she's been open long enough for the children of some of her original employees to begin working at Cafe Hun. And she's prouder of that legacy than she is of the restaurant's renown. 
We've raised a lot of kids in this neighborhood, not only as a customer, but as an employee and and to an adult. And I think we're part of the fabric of the neighborhood. Janet Trumbull, who's worked at Cafe Hun for the entire 24 years it's been open, believes that the symbol of the Hun is an essential thread in that fabric. And everybody's a Hun, always has been in Baltimore. Can you describe what a Hun is? It's a working class of hard, hard-working women. Are you ready, Boots? Start walking. It is my very first Hun Fest, and I am excited. It only took 45 minutes and two cans of Aquanet to get my hair up like this. Hold on, Hun. Aquanet, you ain't got a beehive, Hun. I'm a librarian. I work for a library, and I have my master's degree in library science. So it's working women with an attitude. We're big on family. We're big on Balmer. We're big on keeping, like, a cement of the family together by being a good Hun. And I'm a good Hun. Hunfest has been very successful. Cafe Hun has been very successful. And so people people see that, and it's become iconic in the city you know, with our pink flamingo outside. And Hunfest is an iconic festival in the, you know, out there in the world. And so I think it's become that way because the things that we have to offer are so family-driven. And there is nothing unsavory or seedy about what we do. We are honoring working women and we're not making fun of them and we're holding and we hold other people to that standard. You know, the the whole Hun thing, you know, we always say, you know, Hun is in our hearts. Sort of harkens back to a simpler time. There's a basis in oral history for that understanding of, of the past. Like, that's what people think about and remember. And then the other piece of it is this idea of the the Hun, you know, which is which is a you know a female f- figure with a beehive and kind of ostentatious clothing, and and there were you know genuinely people that dressed that way, but they weren't. It wasn't like every woman in Baltimore. It wasn't. It, it's a very. I mean, it's a very um, specific racial gender class performance that people do. It's like a white working class woman from the '60s, right? Maybe the '70s, and and um, with cat eye glasses, and you know, I mean. Like I've mellowed over the years about how I feel about Hunfest, but but it definitely it's a notion of the past that's worth thinking about critically because it's not it doesn't reflect it may reflect some aspect of the reality of Hamden's past, but but it doesn't reflect the totality of the reality of Hamden's past. If that Hun thing that she pushed hadn't been started, I don't think that business-wise and appeal-wise, as many people would have come into Hamden. I really give her a lot of credit for that. Um, I think it's worn out now. It's a nice two-day festival. As was the case with the redevelopment of the mills, newer businesses in Hamden seem to be interested in preserving and capitalizing on the town's own admiration of its working-class roots. But there's one aspect of that romanticizing of the past that seems purposefully absent from redevelopment, Hamden's historic racism. Up next, we'll hear more about how Black Baltimoreans have regarded Hamden over the years and how one group of protesters memorably tested their assumptions of the community whose complex racial history had been the stuff of anecdotal legend. You've been listening to Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community.
It was one of those, uh, what you call a sundown town. You know, my quick court over there after sundown. It was not a warm and fuzzy place for black folks, historically. A bunch of racist rednecks over there, and, you know, you don't want to get caught over there at the wrong time. Or... Okay, I'll admit it. There are two reasons why Allie was the primary interviewer on this story. First, it was her idea to explore Hamden's recent gentrification. We both thought we'd find a clear-cut case of young people, specifically hipsters, opening butcher shops, charcuterie bars, and designer chocolate businesses, alienating or displacing working-class Hamden residents. But that was the first of two hypotheses our research disproved. I don't know that anything anybody thinks that it is a negative change. We went through a period when there were all those stores were closed, and it was uh, sort of depressing. Now that people from outside have come in and opened stores and 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 uh, restaurants, it seems to have a positive influence. I truly feel that a, a, an occupied storefront is better than an empty storefront. The second was this. I thought that if I were the lead interviewer, residents wouldn't be candid about their truest racial attitudes. Since we chose Hamden as one of our community stories, I've heard all types of things about its racist past. That the KKK marched there, that a cross was once burned on the lawn of a black family who moved in there. That even now, in 2016, I wouldn't necessarily be welcome. Those stories, some verifiable and some not, made me reticent. But the truth is, everyone I did meet in Hampton was kind, exceedingly generous with their time, and forthcoming about the community's relationship to its black neighbors. This is what I meant at the top of the show when I said that Hampton is a town of contradictions. We targeted um, Cafe Han. The, there's a, a Mexican restaurant in that area. The name is slipping. Golden West Cafe. A couple of the different shops. Pretty much any door that we could get into where there was enough space. There was a, a, a cupcake shop. There was a coffee shop. Any place where we felt there was space for us to crowd the 20 or so folks who joined us that afternoon. We went in you know, and, and read our message um, and, and really just took up space and disrupted business as usual in all of the businesses we could along that strip of 36th Street. That's activist Zach Murray, who visited various eateries last summer as part of the Black Brunch protests. Yeah, the Black Brunch um, protest tactic originated in Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. Um, A roommate of mine at the time called in a bunch of different black community activists in Oakland so that we could develop a protest tactic that was specific to our needs, because oftentimes the protest in response to these types of crimes against black people from the police happen, you know, in the downtown area, or they may happen in close proximity to where those crimes occurred, but very often is that protest felt by white folks in elite neighborhoods or in gentrifying neighborhoods. So our tactic really aimed to target those areas specifically. Zach says that the most memorable exchange he had with a Hamden shop owner was at the popular restaurant Rocket to Venus. And I remember after we um, got up and and did our message, um, a lot of our message was related to um, the, the murder of Tyrone West by the Baltimore police at that point, since it had been prior to Freddie Gray's murder. I remember at the end, a number of the workers and the, the customers got up and applauded um, what we were doing. And then we left, and as we were leaving, I, I noticed that my mom and my sister, who were both a part of the group that held back outside, were in a pretty contentious argument with a guy who was working the grill outside. And he was, you know, beginning to hurl insults, and um, you know, accusing the group of supporting cop killers and things like this. And luckily folks intervened and kind of calmed that situation down. Zach says the mixed but somewhat receptive response to the Black Brunch protest at Rocket to Venus 
encouraged his friends to view themselves as leaders on a mission to reckon with the subject of race in Baltimore City. There is a very, very huge race problem, but there isn't the willingness to address it. Um, I think it's, you know, you have an interesting history of blacks and whites in that region living in very close proximity to each other for hundreds and hundreds of years in a relationship that is inherently unequal. And, um, you know, the city of Baltimore um, has yet to address it and to deal with it in a way that's adequate. And one of the things that's obvious in it is that the poor whites who have lived in Hampton um, now have, you know, better access to services. There's always been a grocery store in Hampton. There's always been, um, you know, retail and a, you know, diverse commercial strip that you, that you don't see in communities that actually are, have, may have a higher percentage African-American, but actually even have a higher average income. And so, you know, the, the, it's just interesting as you look at the patterns of gentrification that it seems that even in Baltimore, the communities that get the most positive benefit from that in terms of development, the entry of new retail and things like that, are communities that are more white. And so I'm explicitly talking about Hampton and, um, and Remington and Pigtown and these areas that are benefiting from this new wave of urban development in the city. It's not widespread and it's not shared. And so, you know, it's our hope that there's a real conversation about race and that and class in our city, and it, that it happens really soon because it's urgent and it's a powder keg that, if we don't address it, I think will explode. One of the few consistent perspectives we heard from Hamden's longtime residents was an acknowledgement of the community's racial tension as well as a desire to get past that tension. That the black brunch protesters were listened to and applauded may be a sign that the future of Hamden will be both nostalgic and progressive. Hamden will likely always echo its past, but perhaps that past won't always be echoed verbatim. Do you have a favorite photograph in your book? Yes. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is the first house in the neighborhood built in 1811 by Alicia Tyson, who was uh, a mill owner and an abolitionist. Is that the house that was part of the Underground Railroad? Probably. This episode was produced by Ali Post. This program is produced by Stacia Brown and brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM as part of Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR with financial support from the Wincote Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Artworks, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Baltimore, the Rise of Charm City's field production team includes Ali Post, Mavish Raza, and Marsha Jews. Theme music by Mark Gunnery for the Center for Emerging Media. For photos and video from Hamden and the people you just heard talking about it, visit riseofcharmcity.com or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. In two weeks, we'll return with an episode about the history of Black-owned banks in Baltimore City. 